Hello and welcome. This is Social Studies, Voices from Across America. I'm Bill Wood. And I'm Peter Goldsmith. Our guest today is David Loy, a professor, prolific writer, lecturer, and Zen teacher in the tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism. Popular recent lecture is Healing Ecology, a Buddhist Perspective on the Echo Crisis. And that's why we're talking with David today. Is there a spiritual responsibility for the environment? Let me ask David a first question. You know, David, uh, I have read your book, The Climate Emergency. It's a wonderful book. But when we talk about a climate emergency, I think we're really talking about the environment of our planet. And I think we're also talking about protection. Where does Buddhism come into this equation for those of us who may not be familiar with the Buddhist teachings? That's a very good question. I think the first thing to note is that... um, of course, at the time of the Buddha, and also during the way that subsequent Buddhist traditions developed in Asia, there wasn't the kind of climate emergency that we have today, right? The Buddha didn't know anything about climate change or carbon dioxide. So it's not simply a matter of sort of looking to Buddhism and asking, okay, what specific teachings apply. Rather, one has to make some effort to sort of get a sense of the overall Buddhist worldview and then ask, well, what perspective does that offer that can maybe help us today, help us understand our situation? I mean, what, one interesting thing about the Buddha is he had a very special relationship with the natural world, especially trees. When you go back uh, to the traditional biographies, supposedly he was born outside in Lumbini Grove, when his mother went into premature labor. Uh, Later, there's a famous story where he enters into a kind of meditative trance under a tree as a young child. And when he leaves home, where does he go? He goes into the forest. He practices in the forest. He meditates in the forest. He's enlightened under a tree. And he spends most of his time living and teaching in the forest. And he actually dies between two trees. So he seemed to have this kind of very special relationship with the natural world, which does seem to permeate uh, a lot of the Buddhist perspective. Um, It's also interesting that within the Buddhist discipline, the rules that the monastics are supposed to follow, they're not allowed to cut down trees or even uh, a living branch or even pluck a green leaf from a bush. So there's a real sense of protection and concern about the natural world. Let's look at David's last book, A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, actually looks at some of where we're going. It's a series of essays, including one from the Dalai Lama, about our changing climate here on Earth. David, right. I, I have a question as to maybe a, a, a more direction to where we're going. Let's talk about something I heard recently on NPR. It was from an astronaut in space who compared the Earth's atmosphere to the skin on an apple. It's all that separates us from the harsh extremes of deep space. It made me think that if we saw a bruised apple or a damaged apple oh. skin, we wouldn't buy the fruit. So do we have the option of buying or rejecting the Earth? whose skin is bruised and damaged right now. (laughs) Would we want to buy a used planet? (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Because when we look up, all we see is is the blue atmosphere. It gives us the illusion that it's infinite. 
And the same thing is when we look out over the ocean. But in fact, as you said, there's a very small amount of atmosphere. And that makes us realize how pumping billions of tons of CO2 into it might have a very dramatic effect. We've been very lucky so far that about 90%, over 90% of the excess heating that's been happening over the last generation or two has actually been absorbed by the oceans. Uh, if the oceans weren't there, we'd literally be toast. Um, and the same thing is true for water, actually. The total amount of water in the world in proportion to the globe is actually relatively small, especially freshwater. And so it's really incumbent on us to do what we can to preserve it, to, to keep the planet healthy. So is there a spiritual responsibility, a spiritual reality to protecting the environment? Naturally, we tend to focus on what's happening with climate change, the fact that we're uh, releasing so much carbon into the atmosphere and, and the consequences of that. But actually, that's really just the tip of the iceberg, I think. Um, in this case, I'm talking about a metaphorical iceberg, uh, reflecting the fact that, of course, most of an iceberg is, is below the surface. Um, we don't just have a, a climate crisis. When you consider lots of other phenomena, you realize what we really have is, is a much larger ecological crisis. For example, extinction event. We're now well into the sixth extinctions event, ex extinction event in uh, the Earth's history, where, according to scientists like E.O. Wilson, by the end of this century, half of all plant and animal species on Earth could be extinct or so weakened that they will become extinct soon thereafter. Uh, you know, we also have an enormous population explosion. The, the Earth's population is well over three times what it was when I was born. I mean, that's just phenomenal, you know. And when you put that together with, with kind of advanced technologies we have and, and the need of an economic system that needs to keep growing if it's not going to collapse, I mean, what I think we really have isn't just a climate crisis. We have an ecological crisis that points to, well, let's be frank, a kind of global civilization that I think has lost its way. David, is there a moral responsibility that we need to bring to the community for protecting the earth? Because as you and I both know, um, there are many people who decry climate change or these kind of global warming as a hoax or a scam or false news or whatever. But in reality, the great majority of climatologists, of course, agree that we are doing this to our own planet. Mm -hmm. How do we bring a sense of moral responsibility to the community? Well, that's a big question that a lot of us are struggling with, aren't we? It, it's important to acknowledge off the top that at least 97% of climate scientists acknowledge not only that climate change is happening, but that humans are responsible. It's our burning of fossil fuels that are responsible. One of the big issues, I think, is that the seriousness of the crisis actually discourages us, ironically, in, in addressing it. Uh, what I mean by that is we seem to be made in a way, human beings seem to be made that we're very good at responding to short-term problems. In other words, if somebody breaks into my house, wants to burglarize it or something, if my child has a problem, if I'm out of a job, if I'm having trouble 
paying the mortgage. All of these short-term things are the things that our brain are almost designed to deal with. But when it comes to something like climate change and carbon, which is invisible, right? It's it's like those are the kind of long-range issues that it seems like we're, we're not well equipped to deal with. One of the big problems with climate change is that uh, it seems to be long-term. And although there's an urgency to it, it's an urgency that tends to be pushed away or overlooked because more short-term things intervene, especially things like jobs, of course, right? It's like people worry about their, their standard of living. That, that question you asked, I think, is, really goes to the heart of the issue. And in response, the first thing I want to do is actually recommend to the audience, whoever listens to this podcast, a book by uh, an author named George Marshall, who talks, it, the title is Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And he does a marvelous job, I think, of helping us understand why it is so difficult for us to, to address it. I mean, for one thing, it seems to be a long-term problem, you know, compared to the challenge of getting a job or paying the mortgage or dealing with the kids and their problems. It seems like something that is more amorphous. It, it, it tends to get pushed away, even though it's so important, it seems less urgent than the day-to-day tax that we also get involved with. But Marshall also makes another point, and I just, let me just read a couple sentences from his book. The bottom line is that we don't accept climate change because we wish to avoid the anxiety it generates and the deep change it requires. In this regard, it's not unlike any other major threat, but because it carries none of the clear markers that would normally lead our brains to overrule our short-term interest, we actively conspire with each other and mobilize our own biases to keep it perpetually in the background, which means, in effect, now, what he's really saying, what Marshall's really saying is, ironically, the more dangerous the eco-crisis becomes, the more we are motivated to deny it something that seems counterintuitive, but actually overwhelming somebody with the, the facts about what's happening, trying to scare them into getting involved is usually counterproductive. We're talking with David Loy, a professor and writer and lecturer, Zen teacher in the tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism. What we want to concentrate on in this podcast is the healing ecology, a Buddhist perspective on the eco-crisis, and his latest book, A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, series of essays that look at uh, changing climate here on Earth. It is counterintuitive to say that uh, we could hear about all these problems and intuitively say, that's not a problem for me. Is that like we believe that the Earth is going to be there and solid until there's an earthquake, and then you can't compute. Is, are we, is that kind of the same thing, David? Even when we acknowledge that something like climate change is a problem, it, it always seems less urgent than the immediate issues of our daily lives, right? And it's, it's so much harder to get a grasp on it. And the fact that it does seem to be so serious actually encourages us to bind with our own uh, group the more we are reminded of how dangerous climate change is, the deeper, the more we tend to bond emotionally with our own social group and the more passionately we tend to defend its worldview and values. 
because they provide us a kind of security. I mean, I think it's similar to what happens with religious affiliation. We are basically mimetic animals in the sense that we learn what's real, what's important, what we want to do by internalizing the belief system of the tribe that we identify with. Emotions like fear and the need to fortify oneself within our groups, they tend to subordinate reason and facts. Truth is really becomes, it becomes a function of what our tribe believes and everything else becomes fake news. I think that explains a lot about somebody like, like Trump and his supporters, to be quite frank. To sum it up here a bit, politically, we stay in the bubble and don't go outside the bubble because the bubble is comfortable and we don't uh, want to be uncomfortable by thinking that the world that we live in might someday change radically. Right. That bubble is how we deal with anxiety, especially the idea, the anxiety of something as, as, as threatening as climate change or the larger ecological crisis. So it does encourage us to identify with our tribe and its values more. And I think that's, that's at, at the heart of a lot of the problem. You know, David, that's, that's interesting you say that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer off a little bit on this. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating, uh, especially when we're talking about moral and ethical issues, is that you are, in most belief systems, never the last link in the chain. We believe, as many people do in reincarnation, other bodies, another, another same soul, other bodies, however you may want to uh, look at it. One of the things that we try to do on our website and on our podcast is to allow people to hear something that they might not normally hear in their specific group and mm-hmm. to ponder it, not to accept it or, 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 or not accept it, just to right. hear it and say, hey, that's an interesting idea. And one right. of the things that I find interesting is, especially with a little tiny bit, and I'll probably get in trouble here that I know about Buddhism. Um, <laughs> don't worry. Is, is, is that, well, I get in trouble on everything, so I don't worry. Uh, is that there is another body. There, we are not the last link in the chain. That to me is interesting because it helps us deal with the larger issues like climate change. It says, okay, for example, climate change is not going to affect me dramatically in the next 20 years of my life, or if I'm lucky enough to have 30 or 35 more years of my life. Not really. But what's going to happen after that and after that? That's the issue I think we really need to bring up to people in that let's assume that your belief system says, I don't believe in climate change, okay, Mm -hmm. but perhaps it exists. Why not deal with it on the basis of perhaps it exists? Not Mm -hmm. talking to you and me because we know it exists, but I'm talking to those who don't. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is important here to convey to the people, perhaps there is another way of looking at this as opposed to a concretized belief system that really doesn't open itself to change. I, th- I think that's right. I mean, what's sometimes called the preventative principle would seem to apply here, even if there's the possibility of some doubt, some serious doubt about what's going on. The fact that so many people seem to believe in it, and there does seem to be so much research, suggests that you know we, we should be more careful rather than trying to correct things after 
after the horse has already left the barn door, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I have a little quote. I just want to read. It comes from a book called The Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, which you, uh, which, you which I say it's your book, but you you did a wonderful job with it. But the people who you have in this book are magnificent. Well, I should uh, say that I'm only one of the three editors, so please keep that in mind. Yeah, along with uh, uh, John Stanley and. Uh, Okay, so what you say here on page 44 is the 2007 report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was the collaborative work of over 2,000 expert scientists from over 100 countries and is a very conservative scientific document. It predicts the following consequences of business as usual if carbon gas emissions are not uh, radically and systematically reduced. And it says all the horrible things that we know and all the horrible things that we're experiencing right now. Uh, and just just to veer a little bit away from that, I, I went up and looked up some very conservative facts from NASA, uh, which is, as I say, always say to Bill, it's not a bohemian group. Uh, it's a very regimented government group. And it says 16 of the warmest years in recorded history have happened in the 21st century. 2016 was the warmest year on record, and eight of the 12 months of that year were the warmest months there, mm-hmm. ever. How do we break that down to people and say, this is your government telling you this? Or in, in another case, these are spiritual holy men who have nothing to gain. Well, I mean, I think that's the issue that we're all struggling with. Uh, And I don't know that Buddhist teachings have any very simple answer to that. The one thing that Buddhism would add, of course, is the emphasis on personal transformation. As long as we're locked into a a certain self-understanding of who we are and what the world is about. I'm sorry, I was going to say, talk a little bit about self-transformation. What do you mean by that for, for those of us who are lay people? Right. Well, we... Actually, this is an opportunity to express what I think is one of the really important things that Buddhism does have to say about our ecological situation, uh, in the sense that I think there are some really interesting parallels between what Buddhism says about our individual self-transformation and the challenge of our sort of collective transformation right now, right? What do I mean by that? Well, by individual transformation, one way to understand the fundamental Buddhist claim is that We suffer. We have this dukkha. There's this fundamental dissatisfaction built into our lives because we have this delusion of a separate self, the feeling that there's a me inside and the rest of the world is outside, and that therefore uh, my own well-being is separate from the well-being of other people and the rest of the world, right? But this whole Buddhist emphasis on no-self, this very strange sort of counterintuitive claim I mean, the way to understand that is is denying this sense of separation. You know, rather than each of us being separate from each other, we're thoroughly interdependent. We're thoroughly socially and, and psychologically interdependent. And the point of Buddhist practice is to help us realize that, help us let go of the sense of separation so that we can realize our non-duality with the world. Now, that's, what, that's one way to understand traditional Buddhist teachings. What I find especially interesting is that right now, this also seems to be the situation we're in collectively, that we as a civilization, I think, have this sense of separation. Our species, 
human beings, we feel separate from other species. We feel separate from the natural world. We treat it as simply something there for us to exploit, to use in any way that we want, rather than feeling a sense of responsibility to it. So just as individually, Buddhism talks about awakening, realizing our true nature, that is to say, realizing that we're not separate from other people in the world. So it really seems to be the same challenge now that we need as, as a species, as a civilization, we need to overcome this sense of separation from the rest of the natural world. And when we do that, I think we're naturally going to feel a sense of responsibility to it. We're naturally going to feel that we want to take care of it because it's our body, you know? You know, you talk about shepherds of the earth, and I was listening to you say uh, the first precept of Buddha, Buddhism is, is to do no harm. Ahimsa, I think it is. Right. Uh, and it's interesting to me that in, in, I forget religion. I'm not interested in religion right now. I'm interested in a belief system that, that, that an atheist would have the same way I would have. We all know what's right and what's wrong. Murdering someone for no reason is wrong. Um, but yet all these, these different precepts can be, uh, formed in the way we want to form them. In other words, do, do no, do no harm. But I think what, what we want to come back to is a non-religious, you know, separating spiritual and, and religious for me is the right way to go. Religion is a man-made thing. You know, when we bring it back to this kind of, uh, climate and, and, and uh, ecology, we have to somehow be able to separate, you know, the, the Genesis story uh, from what we now see as a new Genesis by us taking over the earth and the taking over is work with it, work within its confines, don't subjugate it to man. And I think that's the mindset we have to get into with this stuff, a moral and ethical mindset saying, I've got a responsibility to my children, uh, to my family, to my community, to my whoever, you know, I mean, countries are just lines on a map, but to my species. And I think this involves a kind of spiritual revolution, you know, because yeah. it, in terms of morality, I mean, we've had hundreds of generations of various types of communities where morality has developed and it's become clear how we should relate to each other. But the ecological crisis is is much more recent, right? Until... And until the last generation or two, you know, small number, relatively small numbers of human beings on a very large planet with enormous resources, enormous possibilities. And so it really felt as if we could pretty much exploit it in the way that we wanted. It's a challenge. It's a spiritual challenge in terms of our basic worldview, how we understand our relationship with the earth. But it's also a political and an economic challenge. Political, for example, right? The earth is organized in terms of 200 plus little gods that basically are responsible to nothing greater than themselves, except the fact that they're bounded by these other little gods around them. And right? little gods being countries that exactly. Nation set up states. their own fiefdoms. That's yes. right. And, and, that's, and that's only been in the last 300 years or so that, you know, the world has developed in that way. But here's the ecological problem. You know, when China burns coal, hey, that pollution doesn't just stay above Chinese skies. Or when Japan has a nuclear meltdown in Fukushima, the polluted radioactive water doesn't just stay in Japanese waters, right? So what the ecological crisis really does seem to be pointing us to is this 
this realization that like it or not, we're all one and that what China does is going to affect us and what Japan does is going to affect us. And, you know, this really does put the impetus on the development of, of, of a much stronger international sense of responsibility. That brings us to maybe the key question in everything that we've talked about, because it's, there's been an effort now politically, and I want to, don't want to bring politics into this, but I have to a bit <laughs> that politically uh, people have been forced to make a decision between saving the environment or saving a job. And uh, what you just hinted at was that our job, we need to rethink what our job is, that our right. job must be uh, saving the planet and how we, if necessary, how we can monetize that as opposed to choosing a cold job over uh, saving the, the environment. That's, that's an important place where we are now and uh, something that we have to make that decision and it's only going to become more significant as the time goes along. Yeah, I think you're totally right on that, Bill. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of work done on that. And we now know for a fact that there are more jobs in renewable energy than there are in fossil fuel energy and that the jobs pay much better than fossil fuel and that they have an open-ended job. We, could, we are going to continually create natural fuel whether it's wind or whether it's water, whatever it happens to be, solar, uh, you know, all these things are now becoming more real to people. You know, the, the, in solar, the cost of solar energy has dropped dramatically um, now that they're no longer using the photovoltaic cells or using film and things of that nature. So the cost is much less. And the more of us who use these things, the more of us who buy uh, – cars with a low carbon footprint, the more of us who do all these kinds of recycling, all these things, these little things add up. I mean, and, and there are jobs in these fields and they're going to be continually making jobs in this field. But yet we have succumbed to this uh, thinking process of, I'm not sure. I don't know. Let me not venture out. I'm frightened. I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, what you're saying about, say, switching to solar power and so forth is is definitely a place that we all need to start on a personal level, right? You know, in, in various ways, we need to reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, at the same time, I think we also need to acknowledge that there are real big institutional challenges here, that there are large, very profitable corporations that make their money with fossil fuels. And they also have the ability to number one, in influence the way we think. And you know, we, we have records now of how much money ExxonMobil and other corporations like that have spent in trying to raise doubts about climate change. But they also spend enormous amounts of money uh, on uh, political candidates. And so we really have a challenge that the economic system we have also need, needs to be looked at it's not sufficient simply to transform ourselves individually in terms of our carbon footprint, but we also need to find ways to address these kinds of larger political issues. Ecological issues of the sort that we've been talking about really 
can't be sharply distinguished from social justice ones. And I think this is one of the major developments over the last few years, right. what's called now intersectionality, right? I mean, social justice and ecological sustainability, they're going to be addressed and resolved together or it's not going to happen. I think Standing Rock was a really important development in that way. You had the Native Americans taking the lead in uh, as earth protectors and water protectors. And it wasn't just them, but you know, it brought in many different types of minority groups in, in the realization that these, these issues are all interconnected. And they're, they're, as it were, different aspects of the same struggle, same challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. David Lloyd, lecturer, author, <laughs> whose latest book is A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, a series of essays about climate change, is going to become a time when we're going to have to make a decision. And that decision is going to be individual. It's going to be based on what we know. But if we make the wrong decision, we're faced with a change to our lives, our change to our futures, a change to the way we live, the way our kids are going to live, and the way generations that we don't know are going to live. And if we don't accept that responsibility, then everything that comes after us is going to suffer. Is that where we are now, or are we approaching that intersection? I would say we're making that decision every day already, you know, in, in terms of how we're actually living. And you're, you're quite right that there's, there, there's a special challenge in the sense that if we don't really come to grips with this uh, in, in a way that we haven't yet, if we don't really come to grips with this issue, you know, within the next few years, then it's, it's probably going to be too late to avoid not only sort of civilizational meltdown, because things are just going to get so hot, but some people are even speculating, you know, whether human beings will be able to live in the kind of new climate conditions that are seeming, you know, looking very likely if we're not able to rein in the fossil fuels. That's it. We've come to the end. We've come to <laughs> we've come to that crossroads where we all have to make a decision. I think that's a perfect way to put it, David, that we're making this decision daily. And unless we are willing to make a hard decision about where we are and where we're going, we're going to be, we're going to suffer. You know, Bill McKibben put this very well, I thought. He said, even if 10 or 12% do everything we possibly can to reduce our carbon footprint, that's really not going to make much actual difference in the way things work. The, the system will tend to go on just the way it does. But if a significant percentage of that 10 or 12 actually also, after they've changed the light bulbs, go out and become politically involved, then that's where serious change can occur. Because we also need to look at the institutions and the particular forces and the people who are profiting from the way things are working now, and they want to keep them working the same, same way. Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Political activism is always needed. Nonviolent political action is always what we need to change things. The government will not change things. The people will. I mean, there's that very simple example of non-duality or karma, if you will, right? How we relate to the earth bounces, bounces back and affects us. If the earth becomes sick, guess what? Human beings, human civilizations become sick. And, and, and so there's a lot of emphasis in Buddhism on 
combining our own spiritual development with using that as a grounding or a, a, a place of equanimity in order to go out and to be more engaged in a more effective and, and uh, less frustrated way. David Loy, thank you. What we're talking about is that there is a spiritual reality to saving the environment and uh, the planet that we all live on and how it can be damaged if we ignore that spiritual responsibility. So thank you. But I just add very briefly, uh, those who are interested in these Buddhist issues, uh, if I can refer them to my website, there's a lot more on it, right? Please do. Please do. Writings, podcasts. Uh, www.davidloy, one word, dot org. L-O-Y, David, L-O-Y, David That's Loy. That's right, davidloy.org. And if you, people want to follow up, that would be one way to go. Until our next time, take care of each other. That's what we've been talking about for the last half hour or more. Take care of each other and respect each other. Peace, always. Thank you both. <laughs> <laughs>